What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 116 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with professor and author Matthew Williams. First of all, thank you so much for checking out my show. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to adult education. For me, this show is all about learning new things or maybe exploring more about some topics you're already familiar with. I like to speak with experts across all fields to learn more about health, education, technology, music, mental health, and really just about anything I find interesting. If you'd like to support adult education, the best way to do so is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. Word of mouth is the best way to inspire new people to check out adult education. When I told a friend that I was going to be doing a podcast episode on hate, they gave me a weird look. They asked me if anyone would care about that. So I had to step back and ask myself the same exact question. Would someone care about a discussion on hate? Ultimately, I came to the conclusion that hate is around us in just about everything we consume these days. And yes, I think people would be interested and I hope I'm right. This week, I'm speaking with Matthew Williams. He's a professor of criminology and has spent decades of his life studying hate crime and hate speech. He also founded and directs Hate Lab, which is a global hub for data and insight to monitor and counter online hate speech and crime. And that's it right there, isn't it? Online hate speech and crime. That's what I mean when I say we're surrounded by hate. It's Everywhere we look online, whether it's in social media, article headlines, or political speeches, hate appears to be everywhere. What I wanted to know more about was how it inspires others to hate. You know, we aren't born with hate in our hearts. It's not genetic. It's not in our DNA. So how do people get inspired to hate other people? I spoke with Matthew about his new book called The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. This interview was scheduled for 30 minutes. I so wish that I could have had 30 hours with him. I feel like we barely scratched the surface on the topic, but there's still so much great content in our chat, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matthew Williams. So I appreciate your time today. Absolutely uh, fine. I, this is my last interview, by the way, so if I sound completely nuts... <laughs> It's because I've done 16 interviews today. <laughs> well, perfect. I only need about three hours of your time, okay? <laughs> you may not get that. I'll do my best. It's like finish line. No, I finish totally line. get it. Well, I, I, I appreciate you squeezing me in here at the end then. I, I do. I, I understand no, it's, the it's grueling day that these things can be on people. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Are you over in the UK as well? Yes, as you can tell from my accent, I'm sure. Yeah, so I'm uh, based in Wales. So are you familiar with uh, our little tiny country? I'm familiar with the name of it. I don't know the history and all of that, but I'm familiar that Wales exists. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we're a little tiny annex to uh, England. Yes. Yeah, so um, Cardiff is the the capital of Wales. So that's why I'm located. Yeah, yeah. It's about an hour and 40 minutes from London. It's a small country, right? So yeah, it's not far. And, And where are you based? I'm based in Baltimore, Maryland. So just north of Washington, D.C. I don't know if you're familiar. Familiar? I am familiar. Yeah, yeah. Been over to the East Coast quite a few times. Never... Never down to Baltimore, though, unfortunately. it's uh, It sounds like a great city, but um, never never had the opportunity. Yeah, you know, it's a city that's not without its problems, but uh, but it's a funky yeah. city. It's got a, it's got a good artsy community. It's got a good personality, and I, I, nice. I've always appreciated that yeah. about the city. Is it where The Wire is based? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I know it so well. <laughs> yeah, the whole five seasons of The Wire, yeah. It's funny you good. say that. I was talking to Matt Haig a few years ago, and oh, yeah. when I first moved to Baltimore, 
I came across a group of folks from the UK that were here on a wire tour. And I thought of all the things you could come to America for, you want to go see the worst parts of Baltimore because you watch them on TV. And I thought it was so wild. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's certainly something I'd consider if I was ever in Baltimore. Yeah. Me and my best mate, Andrew, we were obsessing over the wire quite a few years ago now, but yeah, we were kind of like, he was in London housing Cardiff. We were watching them at the same, watching the seasons at the same time and comparing notes and uh, quotes and you know, it's kind of yeah. It was such a good show though. I mean, it was absolutely genius, absolutely genius. I loved it. Miss it as well. And written and to research by a criminologist. Yes, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah I yeah, did know yeah, that. Yeah. It's one of the yeah. first shows I watched where it felt like real life where the seasons would end and yeah. you know, you expect a show to end either on a big cliffhanger or with some sort of happy ending for everybody. And this show yeah. would just sort of end in the middle of real life. And you'd think, well, that yeah. was kind of lame. But then when you think about it, that's what life is. Like life doesn't always have a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't always have a There's happy no, ending. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of fizzled out. Yeah. You know? I, I loved it for that reason. I, I should rewatch it actually. I, now you've brought it to my attention. Um, I need to re-engage with the wire. Yeah, it's one of those things you can watch twice. I reckon. So, oh yeah. yeah, great. So, what? Tell me a bit about your podcast before we kick off. Yeah, no, for sure. I uh, I started this podcast about three years ago, and I started it at the time uh, with this idea of kind of jumping into sort of the wellness community because I wanted to learn more about ways I could be healthier, I could be the better version of myself, all of these things. But as the pandemic took hold and wellness kind of captured a lot of people's attention, I started to really hate the wellness industry. So I kind yeah. of diverged off of it. And I called the podcast Adult Education because now I, I just like to learn about things. I like to learn more about topics that as adults, I don't feel like, you know, we don't have classrooms. We don't have that every you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday classroom that we have to go to uh, for, yeah, sure. for an educational purpose. So I, I like to talk to people like yourself that have done research on a topic that I think is really cool and I want to learn more about. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's uh, it's exactly what the book's about, mate. That is like precisely trying to get the stuff that's in my head that I've had in there for over 20 years into a book that other people read that aren't academics, because that's the problem with academics is that we just talk to each other, right? And uh, we never actually get the message much further than, than the academy, which is really frustrating, uh, which is why I I'm so thrilled that they released it in the U.S. To be fair, because it's the kind of book that I think that needs that needs an airing in the U.S. You know, it's it's such a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I think right off it. that that's exactly right. I mean, the U.S. is going through a lot of issues right now that I think are very yeah. topical within this book, and I think there's a lot of folks yeah. that can learn from what you talk about. The name of the book, by the way, is "The Science of Hate: How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It." And I, I'd like to start, uh, if you don't mind. I, I read about it in the book, but I want to know more about your story and why you came to think this is a topic that you want to study, like finding out where people's hatred comes yeah. from. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because it's such a dark subject. So you kind of wonder, uh, you know, why would you study it? And it, it's a deeply personal reason because I was uh, attacked about 20 years ago, um, back in the late 1990s, uh, for being gay. I was a victim of a, a homophobic hate crime. I was basically in London celebrating with friends the end of my degree. Um, and I basically stood outside a gay bar uh, to have a cigarette. The next thing I knew, a guy came towards me, asked me for a light. I obliged and boom, black. I just completely and utterly kind of like lost consciousness. 
I, I kind of quick, quite quickly awoke um, just after, uh, seconds after maybe, who knows, taste the, the tang of blood in my mouth mm. and uh, kind of wondered what the hell just happened. And I look up and it's three of them instead of the, the one. They're kind of throwing homophobic slurs at me. And all of a sudden I'm like, ah, right, okay, this is what's happened. And I was like, immediately aware I was a victim of a hate crime. And it changed my life. It changed my personal life. I, I've never shown any kind of, public uh, displays of affection uh, since, really. I don't kind of hold my husband's hand in public. I feel like I, I'd attract uh, another attack, maybe. Mm. I, it just kind of it stayed with me. And um, I, 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 it changed my professional career. I, I was, wanted to be a journalist. Then I completely changed my mind, and I thought I need to figure out why I was chosen that day. Mm. Why was why did they why did they pick me? And criminology was the the place to go because criminology is a really interesting discipline. It, it brings together lots of different fields of, of inquiry, lots of different scientific topics. So it will look at neuroscience, it will look at brain scanning, it will look at biology, it will look at chemistry, it will look at economics, it will look at politics. It will also look at things like AI and computer science to try and understand why people and how people are committing crimes. And this is it was a great discipline to study because it just brings them all together. You can't be a master of all those disciplines, but it's cool to be... In a, in, a, in a field of study that can draw on them all. And that's what the book does. It kind of presents all of those different scientific topics um, and what they have to say about hate. And, and that was what I tried to distill in the book was ultimately this kind of like this mixed bag of scientific inquiry. But you need that broad array of science to understand a phenomenon like hate. And I spent 20 years doing it. It's, it's a long time of studying this one subject. Um, but it's been rewarding. I like to think that, you know, out of a really bad thing, like the hate crime I suffered, something good has come out of it. Uh, who knows, maybe one of my perpetrators will pick up that book. It, it, I mean, that would be amazing, right? I'd, I'd absolutely love for that to have happened. But um, yeah, but that, that's the story behind the book. I was thinking about this while reading your book and just wondering, like, for me, I get so fired up about things that I can't even read the comments on a social media post, you know, because I just like I don't want to oh, hear yeah. what people have to say. I don't need the vitriol that's going to be spit out through people's yeah. keyboards. You've studied this for 20 years. Like, was there a point where you where it really wore on your own psyche? Like right now? <laughs> no, it's <good. laughs> yeah, it's it's tough. Right. So you you kind of need to balance stuff out and and. And I'm a pretty positive person. I don't think you can be a, a negative person and study a topic like this. I think you have to have a certain disposition. And I think I've got that somewhat lighthearted disposition that allows me to kind of kind of delve into these really dark stories. And I I've got about 10, you know, case studies in the book of hate crime. So it's sometimes it's like reading a, a true crime thriller and, and then the next page is like diving into brain science, right? So I try to mix that true crime in with the um the hard science so you get a flavor of reality and then you get a flavor of the science that backs up why they did what they did and it's a really i, th I hope i hope i've achieved that really cool blend of those two things but you know that's but that's my daily life right i'm delving into the cases mm -hmm. i'm delving into the science and i'm trying to figure out why people do what they do and it's dark yeah because you delve into people's lives and you kind of look back into their pasts and so we have some hate criminals in prison and we we have an opportunity to interview them as researchers, right? So you go into prisons, you sit down with a with an offender, and you kind of delve into their pasts, and you kind of find 
similar patterns to what happened to them. You know, there's trauma there, there's neglect there, there's all sorts of nasty stuff that no one should, no kid should go through. And you hear some really negative stuff. So you need to kind of then balance that out with, with some positivity. And one of the things I, I constantly remind myself of is that at the end of the day, there is hate in the world. Um, this hate online, this hate on the streets, but ultimately, um, there's more good people than bad people. Sure. You end up you end up realizing that the good outweighs the bad. And take this uh, example on social media. You know, we in the hate lab we monitor hate speech on social media um, on a regular basis, and uh, we find that less than one percent of it is hateful. Right, the, of all communications, of the billions of social media sure. posts, less than one percent is hateful. You know, ninety nine point nine percent is healthy. So that gives us confidence or gives me hope in humanity in many ways that, you know, most of the stuff that goes on is actually quite positive. Um, and you only have to look at like the earthquake in Turkey and Syria uh, to see how uh, all of a sudden the world comes together to help those in, 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 in need, you know, and there's moments like that that I kind of look at and cherish and think, yeah, there's good in the world. I'm glad you mentioned online because you've been studying this for 20 plus years. The world has changed. Like the way information is disseminated has changed rapidly in that time period. And I always wonder, is there more prejudice and hatred out there now versus 20 years ago? Or are we just hearing about it a lot more because people have a much mm. easier way to spread their message? It's a really good question. It's one I get asked all the time, and it's a super difficult one to answer. Sure. And you won't be surprised by that response. But part of the reason is, you know, how do you measure it? And for how long have we been measuring hate? Um, so to be fair, I mean, in the US, you've only been measuring it for, say, 15 years. In the UK, maybe about the same in terms of criminal statistics. So we only really have about 15 years to go back on um, in any serious way. Even those statistics are flawed. I mean, let's put it like this. In 2021, there were just above 7,000 hate crimes recorded by the FBI in the US. Um, basically, the sheriff's departments and the county police all report into the FBI. Um, in the UK, there were 150,000 hate crimes in the same period. Okay, but the UK is way smaller than the US. Is it more uh, uh, um, intolerant? Maybe, maybe not, but probably not that much more intolerant, I'd say. Um, so what does that tell us? It tells us that we're measuring it very differently. You know, we're we're we're, we're counting it in a different way, um, <clears throat> and also minority communities may be more willing to engage with the police in the UK than say in the states, sure. because the relationships between minority communities and and police in the states is probably a bit worse than it is in the UK. I'd I'd hazard to guess. Well, we can talk about that, but ultimately, I think that um, the statistics are pretty useless to be fair when it comes to understanding its prevalence but the one thing i can say with confidence is the fact that it's more insidious today it, mm. it seems to permeate more than ever before because of technology and that's this notion that hate is a 24 7 phenomenon now i always use the example of a school kid right me in the 80s in school i was bullied but it was restricted to the playground on the way into school and the way home from school, right? I had the evenings where I could watch telly and be totally uh, chilled and the weekends where I could be with my mates and be totally chilled. The bullying would stop for a bit. If I was in school now, that wouldn't be happening. I'd be being attacked 
left, right, and center, that's because of social media, Snapchat, yeah. Instagram, you know, I would just be inundated with it constantly. So the sanctity of the home is invaded by it in a way that it could never have been 20 years ago. So I think hate is more insidious than it ever was. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, when you ask that question, the first thing everyone thinks of is World War II, right? sure, Nazis yeah. and, and, and uh, you know. Um, and yeah, clearly that was probably the most uh, horrendous, most abhorrent uh, um, period of, of hate in history. You know, it's hard to argue against that. But the way hate is manifesting now is very different. And I always say, what would have happened if social media was invented in the 1940s, right? Sure. And, 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 and Joseph Goebbels was able to use social media to spread propaganda in, in a way that we can't possibly uh, even want to imagine, right? And how that would accelerate hate and division. And I think it's a, it's a horrifying but youth, useful thought experiment to do that. Um, it just gives us a, a, a it just gives us an idea of how powerful and how problematic social media is right now, especially for young people. I think. Yeah, one of the things you say in the book is negative feelings are amplified in group settings. So group based emotions they play a big role in turning prejudice into hate. So you got to imagine with social media bring us into these groups. You can put you into an echo chamber where all you hear is the same thing over and over again, things that yeah. amplify what you're already thinking. Maybe it pushes you a little bit further over the edge. It, it you know, uh, militarizes you in a way, if you will. I don't know if that's the right word I'm looking for, but it, these kind of things, this access to all of these chat rooms, these Instagram posts, these whatever, it inspires so many more people to do things that maybe they wouldn't have done if they were just talking to their community and hanging out with their neighbors yeah. and speaking with people around them. I think so. I think it, it is, well, let's put it like this. Um, we know that engagement algorithms uh, are the thing yeah. that makes these companies money, right? So, and they use something called deep learning, uh, which is a process by which the algorithms in themselves figure out what humans like to watch. So it's not like Mark Zuckerberg sat there thinking, yeah, I'm going to push hate because I think humans like it uh, or my users like it. It's actually algorithms learning from behavior. So, yeah. you know, like TikTok can, will learn it by the millisecond how quickly you'll flick up to go to the next, the next story, right? Same with Instagram. They know by the millisecond how quickly you're flicking past something or what likes you're giving. So it knows, and there's billions of interactions. And what the deep learning algorithms figure out is that, when there's something extreme or hateful, we tend to watch for a bit longer. It's the same with dog and cat videos as well, mine. So there's two sides to the sure. show, right? <laughs> we love the dog and cat videos, yeah. So we also, but we also stay stay tuned if it's grim and and weird and horrible and potentially hateful. Um, it's like driving past a, a a car accident. You don't want to look. You shouldn't look, but you look. Yeah. And you know that's part of our that's pretty much how our brains are designed to work you know we we are we're constantly on the lookout for threat we're constantly thinking we need to keep ourselves safe we need to survive you know that's a that, that's an evil evolved instinct essentially these these algorithms have picked up on this right yeah rather inadvertently but through our everyday interactions they figured out well humans kind of love the gory extreme stuff so let's give them more the go gory extreme stuff because we know that our masters sat up in Silicon Valley want cash. You know, I'm giving agency to algorithms now, which sounds weird. So I'm sorry about that. But ultimately, that's what's happening. And uh, they're learning how to pick up what we, what keeps us engaged on their sites more and more. Hate is sticky. You know, hate keeps us glued for longer. So as long as that's the case, 
And as long as that means more cash for these companies, I can't see a way out of it. They're not going to turn them off. They can't right. turn off. Once you turn on, once you turn on the engagement algorithm, you can't turn it off. You know, it's like Skynet. Once you turn it on, <laughs> you can't you can't turn it off. I'm being a bit salacious there. But you know, once you press on, it's like once it starts generating that amount of cash, how do you how do you deal with it? And all you can do then is just go back and, and put on like sticking plasters and band-aids and and try to think, well, we'll try to retrofit and try to figure it out by by legislating and uh, it won't work. It won't work in the way we want it to. Um, but it's this kind of this is really awkward balance between ethics and and capitalism and money. It always comes down to that, right? It does. And you know what's also interesting is how you'd think that as we evolve as people and as time goes by, that hatred would evolve and you know, maybe there'd be less of it. You'd think as people grow, there'd be less of it out there. People would understand some of the prejudices that we had before are not really valid, they're not necessary. But when you really look at different points in history, you mentioned World War II. I've been listening to a podcast recently about, um, you know, are you familiar with David Duke? Do you know yeah. that? Okay, so the podcast yeah. about his yeah. rise to fame in the late 80s and early yeah. 90s and then I was listening to that podcast thinking you could replace the name David Duke with any number of political figures here in the U.S. today. And it's the same exact method and it's the same exact message. And you'd think that 30 years have gone by that people will have evolved and people would have changed the way they look at things. But that some of that hatred is still so deep rooted. And I guess, you know, from my standpoint, the way that I was brought up, I cannot understand how some people still have these views decades eons after the fact you yeah. know i just it blows my mind it's generational in many ways you know we learn hatred we learn prejudice so if if we are exposed to it as kids um via our parents via our peers then it will just continue down the line it's not genetic it's, there's nothing biological right. about it in that sense but <clears throat> it is definitely um uh, uh familial you know it's something that we pick up from family members and it's it's imitation it's 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 social learning it's it's all those things that, that you know it, it can turn you into a really decent person that's really tolerant that can equally turn you into a a really divisive person that's that's kind of prejudiced um i mean again you look at you you speak to criminals in um prison that have been accused of hate crimes yeah and their families would have espoused nine times out of ten those kind of really prejudiced attitudes you know you'll get the few that don't sure. you know and they may have picked it up somewhere else they have deep-seated frustrations that they go and seek solace in a far-right or white white supremacist group you know there are examples like that out there too it's not always the case and none of the science would suggest that anyway um but ultimately, yes, you know, it, it's hard for us to understand. That's a good thing. I mean, I always think, well, I find it hard to understand that perspective. It means I'm on the right path and I'm actually doing the right thing, you know. But of course, it's my job to then go and find out. So then I have to go and dig in and try to understand, even though I can't empathize, you know, I can't put myself in their shoes and get it. I can kind of use the science as a tool to, to approximate that in some way. Yeah, you mentioned just a second ago there that, you know, hate is not genetic. We're not born with it. It doesn't come in our DNA. And something you mentioned in the book is that people who hate, they often feel like they're on some sort of moral crusade. You know, they believe their actions are virtuous when they're doing whatever hateful action it is that they're doing. Yeah. And that's also so interesting to me that they can be so jaded in this way where they honestly and truly believe that what they're doing is going to be the right thing for so many other people. 
Yeah, and I think that's down partly to the the moral element of hatred. If you think about prejudice, a soft prejudice or a mild prejudice that may result in, say, microaggressions or just avoiding people, right? So, so most we all have prejudices, and what they manifest as is usually avoidance behaviors. So we end up pushing people away, right? So we kind of say, I'm not going to walk on the same uh, uh, side of the street as that person. I'm going to avoid the party with those kinds of people. I'm not going to invite them to my party. Um, you know, you kind of avoid them, you push them away. Hatred is a is the opposite. You pull people towards you if you hate. So the reason for that is because you want to correct or you want to admonish, you want to kind of you want ultimately exterminate or, or remove from a location, right? If you think of genocide, then it is the most extreme form of gen, you know, ex- extermination. Um, you, you spend an, an an inordinate amount of your time and resources on seeking them out, like the Nazis did with the Jews and and and, and uh, disabled people and gay people and blacks. You know, you will spend ridiculous amounts of resources trying to find them, and you will spend a lot of your time trying to find. Them. That's the other fascinating so that, thing too, because people will they'll sp- maybe somebody will say they blame you know black people for taking their jobs or whatever the reason may be, but then they spend their time seeking those people out. I'm like, well, your yeah. time could be better spent doing something else instead yeah. of doing all of that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if the Germans hadn't spent all that money, the Nazi Party, I should say, uh, spent all that money on the extermination and uh, the concentration camps of the, uh, of the Jewish population, they could have spent that on the war effort, right? Sure. That, that, they could have fought the war on two fronts and maybe the outcome would have been very different. But there was an obsession yeah. there. there. And there was this notion that, morally speaking, there was something so morally different between that group and this group that the sacred values of one group were so undermined by the presence of another group that we had to spend all that resource on removing them. That's crazy. It's it seems completely unfathomable to us, but that's that's what hatred is. Mm. It seems somewhat illogical, um, but it has this for that for that to work. It has a has to have a really deeply moral element. You know, this moral transgression that this group of people are morally so different from me that I I, I cannot just sit by and do nothing. You know. I can't sit by and ignore them. I literally have to get involved in some way. And and it's it's that leap from from the pushing away to the pulling towards that there's that tipping point between prejudice and hate that I talk about in the book. Um and you know, to get there takes a lot. Mm. I mean, we there's, there's like there's like a lot of fundamental things that we have in our biology and our hormones that that make us sensitive to threat and all this kind of stuff. But you know, that doesn't get us anywhere near hatred. It might not even get us anywhere near like a high prejudice. So to get to hatred, you need what I call accelerants, you know, these things that layer on top of our predispositions. They can include things like personal and community loss and trauma that that, that we spoke about, uh, but also, you know, um, exposure to far-right groups where you can find solace, possibly, uh, um, exposure to these kind of uh, algorithms uh, uh, online and finding yourself in, self in uh, these polarized groups and maybe even underground social media groups uh, like 4chan and and uh, you know Telegram and and whatnot, where your your prejudices are sort of uh, sort of nurtured and cultivated by others. Um, you're told that your your prejudices are not just your own; they're shared by many others. And you know, ultimately, you get you get kind of indoctrinated. You know, and you know, if you layer on top enough of these accelerants onto a person who's already quite vulnerable and in need of something, there's something lacking in their life potentially then you 
edge towards that hatred you know it's it, it takes a lot which is a good thing you know it's good to know that it does take a lot to get there but unfortunately we're we are leaving a lot of people behind and in society you know we're, we're in economic crises every other day right it seems like it's constant <laughs> economic crisis right no one's got any money no one's got a job you know it, it just feels like we're, we're never coming out of this period of crisis um and turmoil and you know we are forgetting people in that process and the more people you forget the more vulnerable people are to these kind of really divisive narratives that offer them this kind of alternative solace. And of course, far right groups are, are, you know, people in them are smart. They they will lock into what the recent frustration is and weaponize it. You know, it was interesting. I don't remember if I read it in your book or when I was looking up some information on you, but the most common form of hate that you see out there is against women and misogyny. And I found that so interesting because yeah, I guess yeah. here in America, the most common thing you, tends to be more race related is what we hear. What we, or at least that's the well, sexy headline in the news. But you don't yeah. hear about the misogyny as much. You don't. No, I mean, th th this was a study we did online. So, you know, basically, you know, trying to compare and contrast the amount of hate speech around around certain groups. Um, and misogyny is huge. I mean, if you think about it. There, there, there are. It's a larger population sure. that you can target, right? It's half the population. Okay, so it's not a minority group in that sense. You know, most of most hate crimes targeted are perpetrated against groups that are smaller than the majority. Uh, that's what we tend to find. In the case with women, there's, there's there's an equal number, if not slightly more, right, across the planet. Um, so they're not a minority, um, which means there's a lot more of them to target. So it it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me that they 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 come under a lot of a lot of um, hate speech on social. Um, it's 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 it's. And I I still think I tell my students this all the time. I said we thought that we live in a very misogynistic society. Sure, yeah. You know, it, it, I I think we do. I think we've taken our eye off the ball a bit in 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 regards to misogyny and and hate towards women and how that might overlap with domestic violence, which is a really complicated issue, of course. Yeah. But in the UK, for example, and I think in the US too we don't really consider it a hate crime right. of, a, of a woman. Yeah. So it's like one of those things we're debating in the UK right now. Um, so in Scotland, they've introduced it as a hate crime, mm -hmm. right? So they can do that. Uh, they haven't done it in England and we can't do it in Wales because we have to follow England. Um, so it, we're actually at odds right now. There's a, so you can be in Scotland if you're, if you're attacked because you're a woman and it's, you can actually record it as a hate crime. But if you're over the border in England, you couldn't. Um, so that's an interesting, um, I guess it's a bit like different states in America, but sure. for us, it's a bit weird. Um, so ultimately, yeah, I think if you were to count it on social media, it would be pretty much up there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not going to you know, venture to say that women are treated equally around the world. By no means do I think that is true. It's just interesting because, like you said, we don't we don't treat it the same way that we treat other hate crimes. It's yeah. not listed in the same way. Don't. So when I read that, I was like, wow, that's really fascinating that that would be yeah. the most common one. Um, I, I know I'm running out of time here with you and you've had a long day, so I don't want to keep you much longer. But this work is just so fascinating. And ever since I booked this interview with you, I, I found myself making a conscious effort to check my own feelings as things were happening. Oh, you know, when I, when I hear a politician that I don't particularly like say something really negative and it elicits that emotion from me, I would think, do I hate this person? Like, am I hating right now? Because I think, I think hate is an emotion that a lot of people think they feel all the time, but there are different yeah. layers to it. There's different levels of it to which we may act yeah. upon, you know? Yeah, totally. So the academic study of hate really focuses on intergroup hatred. So that's that's where a person 
has an attitude towards another person because of the group they belong to or they think they belong to. Sure. So it's 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 about their identity as part of that group. What you were talking about, I think, is what we might call inter inter uh, personal hatred. So that's where you might feel you hate someone because they've done something bad to you, or they're doing something that's morally repugnant to you. But you're not hating them because of a group they belong to, unless sure. you're thinking, "I just hate politicians because the politicians are," you know, you know, so you could class them <laughs> as a group, right? <clears throat> but you know, that's fair enough. But ultimately, what we're talking about there is two different types of hatred, and I'd argue, unless I do in the book, intergroup hatred is is should be reserved for the term hatred, which is more like an attitude than an emotion. It has emotions attached to it. So you will feel anger, frustration, contempt, jealousy, and all those other kinds of emotions along with hatred. But it's hatred's different. It's more long-lasting. It's more enduring than it than an emotion, which can be a bit more fleeting or ephemeral. Um and interpersonal hatred, I think, is more like an emotion. So I think it's more fleeting. So I think it's something that 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 may erupt and then then diminish. It, it depends. I mean, there are some examples where if you were abused by a parent or somebody when you were younger, you may have a genuine hatred for that person sure. because of what they did to you, right? So that makes more sense. <clears throat> but this more fleeting kind of, oh, I hate that person for saying, you know, we use it so frequently in common parlance, mm-hmm. don't we? Because it trips off the tongue, you know. So I think we use it too much, to be fair, because I think we're we're kind of overstretching its 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 meaning um but i reserve it for that kind of intergroup hatred that we study which is which is which is much more about thinking of groups of people and demonizing them and dehumanizing them in ways that mean that they become sub- subjected to sort of discrimination and violence well matthew the book is fascinating your work is incredible and what i will say i appreciate about the book because i'm a painfully slow reader and when things get way too educational way too academic i start to zone out a little bit but the way that we were talking about this earlier in the conversation the way you work in the personal stories and the stories of people real life situations that have happened and then you dive into okay here's what we found about this particular situation it just flows so well and it becomes it's very easy for the layman if you will to understand uh, what's going on in this book, but really incredible work. Uh, Matthew, is there a place people can go if they want to follow along with what you're doing, with your journey, or I don't know, yeah, do you sure. use social media? Yeah, well, uh, the, the website, uh, thescienceofhate.com, which is the website for the book, has links to all my social Great. channels, but also other interviews I've done on, on the book and uh, reviews of the book and everything else is there. So head over to thescienceofhate.com if you're interested. Matthew Williams, the book is The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. Thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to somebody over there in Wales. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks very much. It's been fantastic. I want to extend a big thank you to Matthew Williams for his time. He had a long day the day that we caught up, and I was his last interview on the day. I don't know if you're listening, Matthew, but I just really appreciate your energy and your time. Check out the book, The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It, wherever you get your books. And thank you to all of you for listening. Until next week, be well.